Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. What's left on the legislature's plate as lawmakers return from their COVID recess next week? For one, a contentious higher ed budget, as well as lingering questions about property taxes. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Senator Carl Crabtree gives us his take on the higher education budget debate in the legislature, and Senator Ali Robby discusses the housing crisis in Idaho's most populated areas. But first, a vaccine update. Last week, Governor Brad Little announced that the state is speeding up the timeline of vaccine eligibility with everyone in Idaho ages 16 and older able to get vaccinated starting April 5th. But as of this week, thanks to an increase in vaccine supply, each of Idaho's seven public health districts have already opened up that eligibility to everyone. By Friday afternoon, more than 466,000 Idahoans had received at least one dose of the vaccine. In addition to mass vaccination sites, public health districts across the state are also working with employers and community groups to get vaccinations to people at convenient locations outside the traditional pharmacies and hospitals. That's the good news, but there are still challenges, including a surge of new cases and hospitalizations in eastern Idaho and a lack of comprehensive information on race and ethnicity of vaccine recipients. Nicole Foy of the Idaho Statesman and Kyle Fonenstiel of the Idaho Falls Post Register and Report for America have been covering COVID-related issues since the beginning and join me Friday to talk about recent cases and immunization data. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Kyle, I wanted to start with you. What's going on with the spike in cases and hospitalizations in eastern Idaho? Yeah, um, I guess I should preface with a little bit of good news. Just on Wednesday afternoon, we opened up access for um, everyone age 16 and up to be able to get the vaccine. Um, and that's a move that's happened statewide now. But uh, it was a pretty uh, pretty bleak meeting Thursday morning um, with the Eastern Idaho Public Health Board met. Um, and uh, an administrator at the largest hospital here, Eastern Idaho Regional Medical Center, said that uh, hospitals are pretty much at capacity in the region. Um, ICU occupancy rates were around 70 to 80% most weeks recently. Um, cases have surged uh, to the point that's put Idaho Falls and Rexburg at national hotspot status in recent weeks. Uh, it's been a really dramatic reversal while Idaho goes through a, a lull in cases. Um, and it kind of harkens back to pretty, uh, pretty rough times in, the, in November and December when um, hospital leaders here warned about a resource crisis. Uh, I, for one, was pretty surprised that this happened so dramatically, and so were a lot of doctors. Uh, the, the, the aggressiveness of the spike really caught a lot of people by surprise. Um, people have been searching for explanations in recent weeks, and uh, a few theories have emerged. Um, I guess the prevailing one that the, the health district has been saying is that uh, people aren't being careful. Uh, yesterday, the health district epidemiologist said contact tracers are finding in their investigations that uh, people aren't staying home when they're sick. 
And this has a ripple effect. One person going to work sick can infect three more people. Those three can infect three more each. That's nine. And then 27. And uh, so it has a real snowball effect. But then there's also the concern about the, the health board here uh, ended its policy of uh, issuing any restrictions. That was about a month ago. All restrictions got lifted in the region about two weeks ago. So all this happened at around the same time and throw into the mix that two variants got confirmed here that are more infectious. So there's a lot going on. So where we are isn't very good right now, but some people have good outlooks for where we could go. Uh, yesterday, the epidemiologist said that, uh, that that cases are still set to uh, set to be reported at high rates right now, but he's hopeful that people listen to their warnings and that um, and that infections can finally die down, but they're expecting some uptick from spring break activity. And Nicole, I wanted to ask you about vaccine availability. Now, all seven public health districts have opened up eligibility to everybody 16 and older, but uh, there's still a lot we don't know about people who haven't been able, been able to access the vaccine for whatever reason. There are still disparities in that distribution. Yeah, something I've been reporting on and watching all year is, of course, what um, how the pandemic and now how the vaccine is um, is is being available to um, the Latino population, to Hispanic and Latinos in Idaho, and it's really hard to do that when um, at this point when there's a lot of vaccine availability in every district, and yet we're still missing. Um, eth race and ethnicity data for a significant number of cases. I, I mean, for a significant number of people who've been vaccinated and still for a significant number of cases as we move forward. Um, so that makes it really hard to know exactly um, how many Latinos um, who were hit pretty hard by the pandemic here in Idaho um, have been able to get the vaccine. And if the barriers that um, many people have been concerned about that already exist um, for groups like Latinos in Idaho. Um, if they're stopping people from getting a vaccine or if we just don't know because so much, almost 50% of data is missing. And I've got to say, as a reporter who's been writing about race and ethnicity data and how it could help us understand um, the pandemic in Idaho and which communities need help, which communities need more vaccine availability, it's really frustrating to see the same thing occurring several months later with vaccine data that we had for months and months with um, race and ethnicity data for the number of people who are testing positive. Um, so that's 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 just something that really makes it difficult to know what um, whether people um, are getting the help that they need um, in order to get the vaccine if they want one. And when it comes to reasons for those disparities, it's not just about language barriers. In fact, there are so many of Idaho's Latino population who do speak English fluently. That's It's not just about providing information in Spanish, right? Yeah, there's a number of barriers um, that people have pointed out as it could be a concern if we're trying to make sure that this hard hit population in Idaho gets the vaccine um, that they need. And, and one, and you know, one thing is sometimes distance from available healthcare, distance from a, a healthcare um, that is trusted. Um, there, um, there were this pandemic really just exacerbated long existing 
um, racial and ethnic disparities when it comes to healthcare access. And so it makes sense that we would see some of those disparities along the same lines. Um, another thing as well, when it comes to um, Latinos who may who are undocumented or who have shaky legal status, you kind of hit these things that people call, I think, like false barriers is kind of the way to put it, where Idaho has been very clear, um, the federal government has been very clear as well that um, your status will not prohibit you from getting the vaccine. Any, anyone, no matter what your legal status, is able to get the vaccine. It doesn't matter about your insurance either. However, asking for insurance, asking for ID, asking for proof of work, all of these things that um, healthcare providers and the state and, and health districts are doing to, you know, verify that the vaccine is going to people in Idaho and not people from other states and stuff like that. That can, for people who are already shaking and concerned about getting the vaccine, that's another, that may make them think twice and may make them maybe not show up for their appointment if they're worried that it could somehow catch the attention of immigration officials. Um, and also too, yes, language is not so much of an issue, but it does become an issue when you're talking about the, la the information that's available. People, Latinos like anybody else, have a lot of questions about the vaccine. Is it safe? Which one should I get? Um, can I get this vaccine if I have this, you know, if I have kidney problems, if I have this, I have that. That's some of the questions that many people have. And when you have months and months of limited information in Spanish, if that's the language you need your information in, that's going to, you have a lot of catching up to do. And that's, could be a problem. All right, well, Kyle Fanenstein, Nicole Foy, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. For my full conversation with Kyle and Nicole, visit the Idaho Reports YouTube channel. You'll find the link at idahoptv.org slash idahoreports. And while you're there, hit subscribe. COVID isn't the only crisis Idahoans are facing right now. Housing and rental prices have skyrocketed in many parts of the state thanks to a combination of property taxes, growth, and out-of-state investors. Freshman Senator Ali Robbie is the executive director of Jesse Tree of Idaho, a nonprofit formed to combat homelessness by preventing evictions and providing emergency rental assistance. On Friday, I asked Senator Robbie what she's seeing on the ground and whether the legislature has a role in addressing the issue. Thanks so much for joining us today, Senator. First of all, how have you been spending the recess because of COVID? I've been spending the recess here in the Jesse Tree office, just kind of catching up with staff and our clients. We are super busy. So it's been nice to catch up a little bit. I imagine you are. You know, speaking of Jesse Tree, what have you been seeing when it comes to housing related issues in the Treasure Valley and throughout the state? I know what I'm seeing when I log on to social media and seeing people, you know, begging for help, looking for housing, but from the professional side, What's what's the landscape? That's been one of the biggest challenges is so our mission is always to keep people in their homes uh, at Jesse Tree and we pay the rent that they owe and provide them with support to get them sustainable. But we're seeing a lot of unprecedented um, things going on. Landlords not renewing leases or giving people 30 day non renewal notices. Um, 
or uh, you know selling their property. And we're also seeing just folks that are, are being kicked out for other reasons and the landlord's not willing to work with us for whatever reason. And the problem is there's nowhere for people to go uh, that's affordable. So um, it's really an unprecedented problem, but um, the supply issue is across the board um, affecting renters and I know homeowners as well looking to buy. Yeah, I, some people who are listening to this might not be as familiar with uh, the the legal background of the of rental agreements and and leases. And so, what you're talking about, landlords selling properties or not renewing leases, all of that's legal, right? Yep, it is. Yeah, and um, you know, even here, a lot of landlords. Well, I won't say a lot, but many landlords do not follow um, the law in terms of the eviction process, you know, giving tenants a three day notice, properly summoning them to court um, and things like that. So we see a lot of, um, of landlords working outside law there, but it is legal to give a non-renewal notice and, and kick people out that way as well. Um, so Jesse Tree works with families to help pay rent and keep people in housing, and, and that's a short-term solution. When it comes to the legislature, are there any long-term solutions that lawmakers could potentially tackle? Yeah, well, one thing that we do here also is partner really closely with eviction court and working with mediators to uh, that are available in the Ada County Court. Um, sitting down with mediators before a tenant goes before a judge allows us to come up with an agreement and a payment plan and keep the tenant in their home and keep that eviction off their record. I would really like to see mediation go statewide. We are working on getting it out in Canyon County, but I think any court across the state could easily implement mediation in eviction court. Another big thing uh, that the state could do is address our property tax issue that we've all um, been talking about. Those property taxes do get passed off to renters. Um, there are things we could do to um, mitigate residential property taxes uh, for homeowners as well as folks who rent to long-term tenants. Another big thing the state could do is invest in the housing trust fund, which it would enable local governments to develop and build more housing um, and get really creative with solutions that their local um, areas are experiencing. The property tax, of course, has been a big issue in front of the legislature this year and a proposal died in the Senate just before recess. What exactly would you like to see when it comes to property tax relief? Yeah, I'd like to see the shift addressed. Uh, that's the biggest problem that we're seeing, especially here in Ada and Canyon County, where residential property values continue to rise at a pace that outpaces um, commercial properties. So residential properties continue to bear more of the burden. We'd like to see that um, spread out a little bit more, see a little more fairness there. Um, that's what I would hope for. I think too, the state could get creative in providing property tax credits uh, with some of the surplus money that we've got to, to homeowners, as well as to people who are renting to long-term um, long renters. We still don't know how long the legislature is going to be in session after you come back next week. Do you think realistically the legislature could do anything meaningful to tackle either uh, rental issues or property tax relief before adjourning signing die this year? 
Sure, it's never too late to pass a bill. There are always ways to sneak one in at the last minute. So I think we um, do have a lot of ideas for how um, you know property tax relief could happen. And so far, those bills haven't got a hearing. They could get a hearing potentially. I think another thing the legislature could easily do is invest some of that surplus money that we're seeing through the uh, CARES Act and the American Rescue, Rescue Plan into uh, the Housing Trust Fund. Um, that trust fund is already set up, just need to put a little money behind it. Um, it's something that local governments really want to try to work together with the state to solve our, our housing crisis. Um, that's an easy budget fix that we could make um, pretty quickly. All right, Senator Ali Ravi, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. When the legislature comes back from its COVID-induced recess on April 6th, there are a number of big issues left to address. One that has prompted a lot of discussion in the legislature and the community this year is the budget for Idaho's higher education institutes after several conservative House members have expressed concern and anger over so-called social justice programs and curriculum at Idaho's public universities. Senator Carl Crabtree sits on both the Joint Budget Committee and the Senate Education Committee and carried the higher education budget on the Senate floor in March. On Thursday, I asked Senator Crabtree about that budget and whether he thinks it will pass the House. We know that the higher education budget is going to face a lot of scrutiny when it hits the House floor. How much more work are you anticipating the Joint Budget Committee having to die? Well, I expect we'll do as much work as we have to. We don't want to try to to re uh, recook the things. We we believe we've done a good job. And with regard to that higher ed budget, you know, there's been a lot of stories told about it, and some people kind of filed their teeth early on this before we even had a budget that this uh, boy we were going to solve the social justice problems, and that was what was wrong with the higher ed. We put together a budget that addresses this problem in three ways. And I don't know if you want to visit about that now, Melissa, if you'd like. But what that has to do with is a three-pronged approach to this social justice thing. Now, I don't hear so much about social justice out in the countries I do at the legislature, but I hear some. There is a concern that there's a social agenda being taught at higher education institutions in this state, and it's unacceptable to a lot of people, and particularly in the legislature. So because I worked at higher ed budget and I am in the, on the finance committee and in education, try to find a way to weave a solution, thread the needle if you'd like, that's kind of the common term now, but try to find a way where we can solve this higher ed debacle over uh, this social justice issue. So I did three things. One, penalize Boise State, which has been kind of the point of the spear on uh, all the social justice conversations and take money away from what they say are their social justice programs. Their, that, the number I used was their number and it's about a half a million dollars. And then we, we also ask all universities by next January to report to us, the legislature, what they've spent on social justice programming. What kinds of things have they been doing? My guess is that number is going to be quite small. If we took it away from Boise State this year and then others report they have it in January, what do you suppose is going to happen with that? So that's the second prong of the solution that we are proposing. And then the third prong is to ask the State Board of Education to take the student fees that, the, the, that are paid and make some of those into a pick list form so that all four universities have the same pick list to choose from. 
So if a student does not want to sign up for a certain club and pay the dues through their student fees, they don't have to. And at the University of Idaho, for example, that's $2,000. Now, maybe the students will choose half of that. I don't know. But it gives an option, and the students can then choose to whether they want to be part of social justice efforts. So it's a three-pronged effort to try to deal with this, and we still want to get the message sent, but we don't want to damage what's going on in terms of other educational efforts at these universities. You know, I've heard so much about social justice concerns about what's being taught to uh, students who, at the end of the day, are adults choosing to attend these institutes themselves. Um, is there a role at all for discussing this country's historical problems with racism? And where do you draw the line between this is a very appro appropriate and important conversation about racism? that we need to have as a society and this goes too far and who gets to decide that well those are really good questions melissa and, and i have the answers to them but the legislature has the checkbook so you kind of have to listen to the guy that's doling out the cash whether you want to or not or whether you like the message that they're telling there has to be a coming together on how this works i frankly uh, get a little concerned when legislatures get into uh, curriculum development. I'm not sure we're well prepared for that. But on the other hand, uh, we have concerns there. And the legislature is a body, maybe it's even more conservative than the state is, but it has the money in its hand. And so there has to be a, a finding of common ground here uh, on this issue uh, between the questions you ask and the legislature. Public schools are also facing challenges, especially with Idaho's youngest students. The state has long struggled to get elementary reading scores up and additional funding often relies on local property taxes instead of the state. I also asked Senator Crabtree about policy changes the legislature could make to improve education in Idaho and what he believes needs to be done this year. You're vice chair of the Education Committee in the Senate, um, and there are big challenges facing Idaho students and educators right now both when it comes to funding and when it comes to things like reading performance um, among our, our young students. Right. What, in your mind, does the legislature absolutely have to address this session in education before adjourning sine die? Well, for me, if, if we want to make a difference um, in, in these lives of these students, we've got to deal with the fact that we're struggling at reading at third grade. We're, we're half, half of the kids have an acceptable reading level at third grade. That is a great indicator of their future lives is how well they can read the third grade. We're not doing well and we've tried a few things, but I think what we're going to have to do is try to help these kids a little earlier. What we would love to have is to have these children helped by their parents and the parents is in the family unit is the ideal scenario for this. The fact is that's not happening. The facts are we'd love to have it, but the truth is it's not happening in these homes as much as we'd like it to. One of my schools uh, that I've talked to in my district says that 80% of the kids headed to the first grade are not prepared. Now, that indicates that they're not getting what they what we would like them to have from the family. And it's the family's trying. You know, we have a high level of, of poverty, you know, when people are working, you know, they don't, and a lot of times they don't know what to do. 
So we're gonna have to figure a way if we want these children from rural Idaho, and that's what I represent most, to succeed and compete with the rest of the world, we're going to have to do better preparing them for the rest of their education. To me, that starts with uh, some sort of optional kindergarten uh, effort for these kids. And many of the schools already have done some part-time thing, funded by the property tax owner. The property tax levies are funding the kindergarten because the state does nothing. So if we've got to solve this problem early, and our problem is that the, the children are coming and not prepared, the parents can't do it for whatever reasons, then we need to, to provide a way to help them. And uh, we don't want a requirement, we want it optional. But that's an idea that I think will be necessary for this legislature to achieve a success in anything in education, in my view. When it comes to issues that you brought up with public education, um, the K through 12 and the funding issues and the burden on property taxpayers, are you confident that the legislature is going to be able to address that before adjourning sine die? No, uh, I don't. But they're going to make some efforts um, with regard to we're doing some things with this kindergarten legislation that I'm proposing is to go ahead and and not allow the levies to be assessed for kindergarten. So it's a shift of that those charges to the state, which were changed in 2006 or so when uh, now Senator Jim Risch was involved and we shifted things locally. Now that hasn't turned out well for local schools in my area. Rural, rural Idaho has not done well under the levy system. So maybe we need to relieve those property taxpayers of this part of their bill and shift it uh, to the state where it was before. So that's what part of this kindergarten deal is, is to try to uh, shift some taxes and try to give some relief to the people that I hear from about property taxes, while at the same time solving this big issue of our kids not being able to read by third grade as enough and uh, not being prepared for first grade when they come. So we're gonna be able to get two things done at once. I think it's a wonderful approach to do it. It's, it's the best thing, of course, I'm gonna go back to it the, the third time, the parents, we want them to do it. And they still have the opportunity to do it. This is not um, a uh, requirement, but if they can't, we wanna be available to help those kids' uh, futures be brighter. You know, one last question from your point of view on both the education and budget committees, um, as well as transportation, quite frankly, where would you like to see some of the American Rescue Plan Act money go in the future? Well, I have several ideas for that, like other legislators, but one is uh, one of the big issues in rural Idaho is broadband. And we put a bill through that I helped with through the legislature this year to establish a broadband group to make some plans and to distribute some monies and also provide an empty bucket to put money in for these things. So I think rural Idaho, if it's going to be really successful at educating kids, they are going to have to have better internet access. We have it at the schools, but when the kids drive out of town, they don't. Well, that's going to be a big deal. And so I think broadband is something that I think will help all of Idaho, but particularly rural Idaho, because you have small population density, but you still have the same needs per child. They still need to be able to access the internet. 
and uh, we want them to have that opportunity. It helps us in a lot of other ways. It helps us in business. It helps us in in uh, safety and medical things too. But when we're talking education, uh, I think it's a big deal. All right, Senator Carl Crouchy, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to do it. Thank you. My full interview with Senator Crabtree is available on the Idaho Reports podcast and YouTube channel. You can find those links at our website, idahoptv.org slash idahoreports. The legislature comes back into session on Tuesday, April 6th, and the Idaho Reports team will continue our online coverage on social media and the Idaho Reports blog. There, you'll also find stories on recent Idaho Supreme Court decisions and vaccine laws relating to minors by Idaho Reports producers Devin Downey, Ruth Brown, and Logan Finney. Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you next week. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.